Well, as you're making your way back to your seats, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. As you're doing so, I also call your attention briefly to a few announcements we have on page 3 in the bulletin. As you know, that's the place where you can find out what's happening in the life of our church. There's also a bull- uh, excuse me, an announcement for you in the back of the bulletin today. I think we ran out of room. So look there also. Just a reminder, though, a couple of the things we've mentioned previously, if you look towards the bottom, are baby bottle boomerang. Again, say that three times fast. Baby bottle boomerang, all right? Uh, those are due back next Sunday, and if you're not familiar with what in the world that is, uh, that's a fundraiser that supports First Care uh, Pregnancy Center, which is a wonderful ministry you partner with, and you fill up a bottle, basically, with coins or uh, large dollar bills, if you so prefer. Uh, and all those proceeds go to their ministry, which deals with crisis pregnancies here in Palm Beach County. Uh, please continue to bring in uh, donated goods for relief effort in the Bahamas. We are still collecting those, and you can look there for what's appropriate. Uh, Bible studies are ongoing. If you're looking for a Bible study, uh, Tuesday is really the best day so far, Tuesday mornings. There's a men's group that I lead. There's also a women's Bible study with, uh, with Truth Point Church that meets at the same time. And our Wednesday formatting uh, has changed just for now. I know there's been some confusion uh, over that, but essentially uh, we're trying to get some smaller groups off the ground. And so uh, we have, as you can see, a, a home group that meets in Marlene's house on Thursdays. I'd love to see more smaller groups develop here at the church. Uh, I would provide the curriculum, provide the teaching, um, but we need host homes. We need people who feel called to that kind of thing. Uh, we need some who feel called to lead those groups, perhaps even uh, in conjunction with a host. And again, I would provide the, the, the curriculum. I would lead uh, at least one of those groups myself. Uh, but we want to try to get out into our communities a little bit more. And uh, my prayer, my hope is to have a small group in West Palm and Lake Worth and Boynton Beach, just to sort of get us out a little bit more uh, into smaller groups where we can build community study God's Word, but also perhaps invite friends who might not come to a Sunday morning, but who would come into your home or you know, come to a Starbucks for a, a Bible study. So again, uh, Wednesdays has paused as we try to build that. Um, in the meantime, if you're looking for a Bible study, again, Tuesday mornings we have studies, Thursday evening we have a study. Uh, Jay leads a wonderful Sunday morning Sunday school group before our service. So we do have Bible study opportunities, but again, trying to reinvent Wednesday a little bit um, and so again, if you feel led to open up your home, if you feel led to lead a group but need a host and vice versa, then, you know, just looking for that. So again, come talk to me afterwards if you feel so led and pray that we would be able to see that happen in the next uh, weeks and months together. And then lastly, on the back, uh, the Women's Monthly Fellowship, we mentioned that our women's ministry has uh, kicked off, has relaunched, which we're so grateful for. Uh, And they are planning events and ministries here this fall, and you can read more about that on the back. You can also visit uh, the women's ministry table in the Narthex, and Nancy and her team would be there and would love to talk to you. Well, as we turn to God's Word again this morning, we are in Philippians chapter 1. We are continuing our series through this letter of Paul's, and our text this morning is verses 27 through 30 of chapter 1. It's found on page 7 in your bulletin. Or if you have a copy of God's Word, you can also look there as well. It says this, again, Philippians 1, verse 27. Only 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. Only, only 5,000 down and 300 a month in this car can be yours. Only a 30-year fixed mortgage and you can open the door on your new house tonight. Right? We've heard that before. Only, only manage to stay healthy your entire adolescence, be better than 99% of everyone else on earth, and you can have a career in professional sports. All right? That's all it takes. Only scratch off this ticket and beat 10 million to 1 odds and you can be a lottery jackpot winner. Some things, some things, particularly when they are qualified by that word only in the beginning, uh, from the get-go, actually sound impossible, don't they? Or they sound even harder than they uh, might sound otherwise. And as you come to this text that we just read, you can feel that, that similar sentiment, maybe, as you heard these words from Paul the Apostle. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Worthy of the gospel. Worthy of the love and affection of God. Worthy of salvation. Worthy of forgiveness. Worthy of adoption into the family of the God of all the universe. How can that be? How does that work exactly? That sounds impossible. Only be worthy, only live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. It sounds impossible. In fact, if you remember, Jesus, God in the flesh himself, in his earthly ministry, sort of spoke to this idea also in his Sermon on the Mount. If you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's all it takes. Just be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or you remember that Jesus in that same sermon talked that our, about our righteousness must uh, exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. And again, that sounds maybe easy to us because we've, we've sort of caricatured the Pharisees in the church today. But think about who the Pharisees were for a moment. They were the teachers of Israel. They were the most pious of pious. Not a single I went undotted. Not a single T went uncrossed. As they tried to adhere every quadrant and, and, and section of their lives to the law of God. They would tithe even the spices from their gardens, the mint and the cumin, right? Nothing went unchecked. And Christ says, only be more righteous than they. It's a heavy burden, is it not? We should feel the weight of that. Because we're told later that the Pharisees are the ones who missed the mark. They missed 
the boat. So how is one worthy of the gospel, worthy of the gospel of Christ? If that was your reaction, if you felt the weight of those words when I read, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, then I have good news for you today. (laughs) You understand grace. You understand grace. If you feel the weight of those words, then it's actually a good indication that you've come to understand grace. For no one, as we know, no one is worthy, no, not one. No one is righteous. We are all together corrupt. No one is worthy. But you see, in realizing our unworthiness and coming to understand our unworthiness, it's then that we cast ourselves wholly on the mercy of God and we come to trust then the one who was worthy for us, namely Christ Jesus. In recognizing our unworthiness, we come to trust the one who was worthy, namely Christ Jesus. But what happens, and this is what Paul begins to get at in his letters, and almost all of his letters have the same pattern. where They talk about God's grace and its marvelous nature, its undeserved quality, and then you begin to see how that changes us. It changes us. And so what Paul is doing here is he wants us to feel that unworthiness that we naturally have. Again, we feel our unworthiness. We cast ourselves on the mercy of Christ who is worthy for us. And what happens then is that grace that we feel, that grace that we experience, begins now to change us. It begins to transform us. It reorders our priorities and our habits and our desires. And so what we see here is that we don't come to God already worthy, but instead his grace finds us in our unworthiness. But then as we experience that grace of God, it changes our lives and we begin to reflect him more and more. And that's what Paul hopes to see here with his Philippian friends. That's what Paul is encouraging them towards as he wraps up this first chapter of his letter. Because remember, as Paul writes, He's of the mindset that he will likely see them again. He hopes to see them again. But he's also mindful that there's a situation where perhaps he never gets out of this jail cell. Remember, he writes from prison. And Paul's mindful that he, again, he hopes to see them. He desires to see them. He even expects to see them. But there's still a possibility for him that he never leaves the jail cell again. But if he never leaves, he knows that the gospel has gone forth. The gospel is unchained. The gospel is unfettered. And they, the Philippian brothers and sisters, have indeed experienced that grace of God. But Paul here wants them to see that whether he sees them again or not, he expects the grace of Christ Jesus, which they have, they have received, to now take root. To take root to blossom in their lives, to flourish in their lives, to again, transform them and their desires and their priorities from the inside out. And if you think about it, that's the same expectation that Paul has for us as Christians, for us as believers today. That the worthy life of response to Christ is how Paul here begins to paint it how he paints it in these verses and how he'll paint it other places in the letter as well. But as we look at just these three short verses, notice first in verse 27, one of the the things that Paul teases out. 
that the life that is made worthy of the gospel, the life that, that responds to grace, the life that is gripped by the gospel, what does it do? The first thing we see in verse 27 is that it stands firm. It stands firm. It's fixed. It has a tight grip on God's grace. I was uh, cutting my lawn uh, a while back, and as I was, uh, you know, I brought the leaf blower out after I cut my grass, and I was, you know, blowing off the driveway, and there's uh, one, there's a, by our front door, we have this wreath that's always hanging on the door, and it's beautiful, my wife loves it, but it's become like a lizard condo, all right? The thing is jam-packed with lizards. It's an unbelievable amount of lizards inside this one wreath. Okay? And so as I'm blowing off the driveway, I always go to the front door and I turn the blower, you know, and it blows air like you know, 200 miles an hour, you know, it's Black & Decker, high-powered blower. I always turn it to the front door. It's one of my favorite parts of the whole job. All right? And the lizards just come flying out of this wreath. They always return. They're resilient, but they come flying out. But this past time, when I was, when I was uh, blowing off the leaves, I come to the door, and I'm, I'm, I'm blowing the front door, and this one lizard, I mean, I couldn't believe it, this one lizard, in the face of the Black & Decker 200-mile-an-hour leaf blower, is just stuck to the door. And he's clinging, you know, he's clinging on with his suction cup hands, and the thing is, you know, his tail is flapping, but he would not move. It was unbelievable. He could not move. He was just fixed to that front door, okay? Resilient, tight grip. It's silly, but hold that image in your mind. This is what Paul has in mind for us, that when the, the leaf blower of life comes our way, when the winds of life, whatever they might be, difficulty, trouble, when they come our way, whether we're ready for it or not, think of the challenges in your own life right now. Think of the challenges that all of us are facing this day. We could go around the room, we won't, don't worry, but we could go around the room and we're all facing challenges of certain kind, health problems, financial problems, familial problems, career problems, anxieties, difficulties, worries. That when the challenges of life come, when the challenges of life are, are, are there, when the challenges face this church, whatever it might be, Paul tells us to stand firm. And again, think about what Paul himself has endured in his own life. Paul's been through it all. Paul's been through the ringer. Shipwrecked, abandoned, persecuted, stoned. Everything, okay? And yet Paul stands firm. Think about the context in which he writes pagan Roman society. Again, he calls him to stand firm. Again, he reminds us here that whatever it is that faces us, we hold on tight, we stand firm. And again, this doesn't mean that we will never falter. This doesn't mean that we will never buckle under the pressure. We can look even in the lives of the apostles and see times where they buckled under the pressure. Think of Peter. Think of the men of God of old in the Old Testament, David and Abraham and others. Think of your own life. Again, it doesn't mean that when pressures come, when the winds of life come, that there won't be times where our grip does loosen for a moment, where our grip does slacken for a moment. But Paul, he reminds us that the life gripped by grace, the life that's been gripped by the gospel will ultimately be one that holds on until the end. 
It might be two steps forward, one step back. There might be times in the valley, but ultimately the life gripped by the gospel will be one that holds on till the end. It has a resilient grip that perseveres until the end, that truly believes that the good works that God starts, he completes. The life gripped by the gospel is one who can say along with Job, naked I came, naked I depart. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. That is the life gripped by the gospel. Again, it's a, it's a persevering one. It's a one that, that holds on. And so, this morning, what is it that God is calling you to persevere through? What is it he's calling you to, to tighten your grip on his grace in the midst of? I pray that he gives you that strength this morning, that he gives you that strength this day. But then Paul continues, and he reminds us also that the life that's gripped by the gospel is not just a persevering one, not just a resilient one, but it's also one that preserves something. It's a life of preservation. So it's persevering, but it also preserves something. If you notice here, again, the life gripped by God's grace will remain grounded no matter what even the church might throw at it. I'll get to that in a moment. No matter what the church even throws at it. And I use that term throws at it because as I was reading here, it reminds me of this game that I played when I was a child. You may have played it also in, in PE called Gator Ball. Gator Ball. If you don't know what that is, it's basically dodgeball. Uh, it's dodgeball. You have two sides, but instead of it just being like pegging each other, you know, with a ball, you can also cross the line. And there's little circles you can stand in. They were usually hula hoops in PE. Okay? And you can stand in that circle and you can throw the ball at a cone, all right? And on the cone, there was a tennis ball. And if you knock that tennis ball off, your team won. Okay? So part of the job was not just to hit each other with a ball, but also to have somebody around that cone okay, in this sort of unified defense of that ball right, to make sure no one could knock it over. And it took that unified defense, though, this coordinated, intentional defense, to make sure that it didn't happen, to make sure that one main item was guarded. Paul here, as he again writes, look at the end of verse 27. He says that we shouldn't just stand firm, but that we should strive together. Again, he talks of intentionality here, of a coordinated effort, that we should strive side by side to have unity of mind, unity of spirit, that we should strive side by side in a coordinated effort for what? This is important, for the faith of the gospel. For the faith of the gospel. You see, as I was thinking about this, and the places I've served, the places I've been in my ministry, as I've, as I've looked around and surveyed the landscape of just, you know, the church at large, the church around us, I began to think that too many churches strive, they do strive, but they strive for the wrong thing. They strive for the wrong thing. That churches can be tempted to strive for, for relevance, for popularity, for, for cultural accolades, for, for social acceptance, for social applause, whatever it might be. And what usually happens there, though, in those churches? What's usually abandoned at, at some time? 
The gospel. The gospel. Again, think of, think of some of your mainline denominations, your mainline churches, some of the more liberal branches of the church. What happens when you become so consumed with social acceptance or cultural relevance or popularity in the social or public square? What usually has to be abandoned? The gospel. The gospel. Because the gospel is ultimately a stumbling block, is it not? It tells us that we're sinful. It tells us that we're not okay. It tells us that everything is not permissible. It tells us that there is judgment coming on the, sins of, on, the, on the sins of the people. That the wrath of God is coming against unrighteousness. Right? What happens in, the, in those situations when we, when, we, when we want to be culturally relevant or socially acceptable above all else? The gospel usually gets shelved at some point. Scripture has to go. The gospel has to go. Exclusivity has to go. A.W. Tozer, a great uh, preacher of old, says it this way, it's scarcely possible in most places to get anyone to attend a meeting where the only attraction is God. Isn't that true? It's scarcely possible in most places to get anyone to attend a meeting, a gathering, a worship service, right, where the only attraction is God. But then on the other hand, there are some churches that not, might not be tempted to strive for relevance or for, or for popularity, but what do they strive for instead? They strive for self. They strive for only self-preservation. So they want to preserve, but the wrong thing. They strive for self-preservation, to preserve their history, their expression, their heritage, to preserve only the legacy of one pastor or one way of doing ministry. We can be tempted to preserve only that. And that's sort of the opposite end of the spectrum, is it not? We're not tempted to preserve you know, cultural relevance, but we're tempted to preserve just ourselves and how we've always done things. But again, what usually happens in that side of the, of the, the equation? What's ultimately abandoned eventually? The gospel. The gospel. Because you see, we're told that the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints is at work in different times and in different places. That has to go forth with freshness and with newness and with, and with contextualization. That a church never exists to be a museum to the past, but to always be a ministry for the present and a ministry for the future. To, to renew itself each and every generation. Again, we don't renew the message but perhaps we knew the means that the message gets out. And so Paul here, again, he's reminding us that if we're in a church, no matter where it is, whether it's here, whether it's elsewhere, that if we're inside a church, that we are called to strive. We're called to even fight. That's that word there, fight. <laughs> but what do we fight for? We don't fight each other. Certainly not. And we don't strive for these other things, cultural relevance, preservation of the past, no, we strive for one thing here, verse 27. We strive, we fight side by side. That's instructive, right? We don't fight face to face with each other. We fight side by side for the faith of the gospel. For the gospel. Nothing more than that, but also nothing less. So again, how can that encourage us this day? How can we be unified in our ministry together? How can we be unified in our passion for one thing here at Lake Osborne? That's the gospel of Christ going forth. The gospel 
of Christ. But then thirdly and finally, as we wrap this up, Paul here in these verses reminds us of one other thing. That the life made worthy by the gospel, the life gripped by the grace of God, it will persevere, it will preserve the faith. Then thirdly and finally, it will prosper. It'll prosper. But in the way that God defines prosperity, (laughs) and not necessarily in the way the world does. If you notice in verses 28 through 30, Paul goes on and says, Do not be frightened in anything by your opponents, for this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Notice here how Paul makes a guarantee of our salvation. Verse 28, this is a guarantee of your salvation and that from God. But then in that same breath, he says that God has gifted you something. God has granted you something. And that gift, that experience, is one sometimes of suffering the way Christ did. Suffering the way that Christ did. And you see, that's actually in the economy of God how we prosper. How we prosper. That Christ was rejected by his peers. The Apostle Paul is a clear example of being rejected by his peers. He's sitting in a prison as he writes. And he says to the Christian, to the, to the one who follows even today, that's often our experience as well. That we're rejected, that we're persecuted, that we're tried. But that's not the sign of God's favor being removed from us. It's not a sign of us failing to prosper. It's actually in the economy of God an indication of how the gospel sometimes does its work. So again, I don't say that flippantly. I don't say that as one desiring even that, if I could be honest. But I say it as one who reminds you and reminds you of my own doubting heart that when trouble comes, when, when difficulty comes, when, when suffering comes, when even rejection comes, comes. Don't view it as a sign of God's favor being removed from you. That's a temptation we hear. TV preachers and best-selling books, right? That you're always going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. That when you come to Christ, that your hair is going to grow back and your job's going to prosper, right? You're going to get a bigger house, bigger car. No, that might happen, right? But oftentimes, the road of the Christian is the one of difficulty, But you see, the Bible here tells us that if we experience the suffering of Christ, if we experience the rejection of Christ, basically, if we experience on earth what Christ himself experienced, if we share in that, what also will we share in? We'll share in his glory. We'll share in his glory. That just like the cross preceded the crown for Christ, that so too will the cross precede the crown for the Christian. That there will be times in our lives that it feels like we're bearing a cross. But yet we know in that moment, God hasn't left us. God is with us. God himself knew that agony. And yet, for the one who bears the cross is the one who also receives the crown. And again, that is our hope. So again, wherever you are found this morning, 
Wherever God has placed you, the call here from Paul is to hold, to fix our grip on Jesus, to hold on to him in the difficulties of our life, to hold on to his message alone in the church, and to hold on to him and trust him even when we can't trace him. Because he's with us. He's never left us. And then he has in store for us an eternal weight of glory. Hear Paul in 2 Corinthians as we close. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 and 18. He says, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are passing away. For the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we do again thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for its relevance in our lives, even here and now. We thank you that the same hope, the same Savior to which it points, is the Savior that Paul knew and spoke of, and is the Savior that we know also in Christ Jesus. That our lives change, our lives come and go, history changes, history comes and goes. The church changes. The church even comes and goes, it seems. And yet your gospel remains. Christ remains. So, Father, again, would you fix us there? Would you ground us there? Would you help us to stand firm upon Christ in whatever it is we are dealing with this day in our lives? And we thank you. We praise you. That even when our grip slackens a bit, your grip never does. You hold us tight. You hold us in the very palm of your hand. So we love you. We praise you. We thank you in the name of the word who became flesh. Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.